2: You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott, and welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead this hour. A July rate hike would be a huge mistake. That's what our guest is warning today. Plus, the bond market keeps flashing trouble signs and a massive debt wall is about to hit corporate America, according to another expert with us. We'll dive into all of the details and look at why the market's unimpressed. Plus, a bullish call in one part of the REIT sector and Mizuho says now is the time to strike. The analyst behind that call joins us to make his case and he brings his top name. And more than 100 million people, including Dom Chu, have signed on to Meta's Twitter competitor threads in less than a week, although I can't log in on my laptop. So what's next? One of our guests says it's all about targeted ads, and the platform is perfect for that. He tells us why. But first, over, is it at the Domino? It is at
3: the Domino. It is at the Domino on the threads, and so it kind of carries over from Twitter to threads. But my intention is to use both. We'll see if that works. But to your point, Kelly. A lot of work. I'd like a desktop app. Yes. It makes it a lot easier for
2: me. Please.
3: Anyway. All right. So to, to Kelly's point here with the markets overall, we are seeing a market that is relatively calm in trading today. So impressed, not impressed, it doesn't really matter that much. It is at least tepid for the time being. Indicating perhaps a little bit of consolidation, a little bit of movement here. The Dow is solidly higher, up by one half of one percent. The S&P 500 hovering right around that 4,400 mark, 44.3, the last trade there. It's up one tenth of one percent. At the highs of the session, we were up 14 points. Down nine points at the low of the session. So that gives you an idea of this narrow-ish trading range that we've seen. The Nasdaq, the real underperformer, just about flat on the session right now, the composite index, 13,659. From a sector standpoint, now that we're just a few days into the second half of the year, a check on the two best-performing sectors in the S&P 500, no surprise, it's technology and communication services, and the worst-performing one, utilities. Uh, again, one of those signs that people are moving towards that kind of risk-aversion trade Less and less so as the summer goes on. That gap has grown quite a bit. But keeping an eye on technology and communication services versus utilities, when things start to switch around, it might kind of indicate that sentiment change. So we'll watch those sectors closely. Interest rates a key part of the story today. We're seeing a bit of a bid to government bonds on the U.S. side of things. Thus, yields moving to the downside just a tad. The two-year note yield, 4.86%. The 10-year benchmark right at 4% right now, which means the difference between that 2 and the 10 Just at about 86 basis points, and kind of put things in context for you, Kelly, over the course of this last week, we did see that inversion go towards, again, some of the worst levels that we've seen going all the way back to the early 1980s. If you take a look at the longer-term chart for those two-year, 10-year spreads, about 110 basis points, 1.1% negative is where we saw things over the course of the last few days here. We're hovering near that amount right now, but watch that two-year, 10-year spread. Is it still the recession indicator, Kelly? I'll send things back over
2: I just to you. like watching the 10-year sitting on 4% as it's done multiple times today. We don't get to see triple zero often. Yes. Tom, thanks. Appreciate it. The markets broadly see a 90% chance of another Fed rate hike in July. And San Francisco Fed President Mary Daly now says the Fed shouldn't stop there. In fact, she said just a short while ago that several more hikes are needed as the risk of doing too little outweighs the risk of doing too much. But my next guest disagrees and says the Fed needs to stop now for more let's bring in Barry Knapp of Ironside's Macroeconomics. Barry, it's great to see you. I didn't realize you were so dovish. Is this a recent thing?
4: Um, Well, yeah, I've been pushing back on the Fed really since the Silicon Valley Bank um, collapse. And, you know, you, you and Dom were just talking about the Treasury curve and you know, there's lots of discussions about the Treasury curve inversion and how long before it triggers or signals a recession and the like. And I think we have to step back, as Dom just intimated, this is really an exceptionally deep inversion, right? So there were inversions greater than 1% on a monthly basis in October of 73, right before that giant recession it, from 73 to 75. There was an inversion of 100 and, you know almost 200 basis points in December of 79 and then another one in December of 80 we've never had anything even greater than 50 basis points hmm. and i'm look i'm measuring it by the 3 month bill against 10 year treasury because the 2 year treasury hasn't always been around but that sort of represents bank financing so this level of inversion is extreme and it was followed by You know, very bad outcomes, very deep recessions. And in the case of 79 and 80, it set off a chain of events that led to the thrift or savings and loan industry ultimately collapsing. Hmm. And at the time, that was 80 percent of mortgage credit supply. So, you know, like we're playing with fire here. And when I look through the data, um, I see credit growth continuing to deteriorate commercial industrial loans from small banks is down to zero percent growth and likely headed more negative. And I saw a lot of evidence in that labor data last week that small business employment is deteriorating as well. That's the most opaque but largest portion of the employment market. And it'll be one of those things that just sneaks up on the Fed and hits him over the bridge of that nose with a ball-peen hammer, so to speak.
2: I absolutely share your concerns, Barry. One of the pushbacks that I hear, maybe you can address it, is from people who say, well, you know, this isn't about the banking system. Or, or, or you know, to put it differently, you know, no one's going to cry for the banks, right? Okay, so they got, they were mismanaged, they got into trouble, you know, what have you. You know, to me, I'm, I'm still scarred by the financial crisis, but it, but they say, well, maybe this isn't the financial crisis. And so if there needs to be, you know, some pain felt by the banks, it, the Fed's larger fight and more important battle is against inflation. What would your response be to that?
4: Well, I have a little PTSD around financial crises as well, having been a partner, senior managing director at Lehman Brothers. So right. I, I readily admit to seeing financial crises at, at uh, every turn. But Listen, the banking system, this isn't about mismanagement. The hedge for interest rate risk for the banks is cheap deposits. As I said before, having the curve inversions last for more than a month or two is extremely rare. They don't hedge interest rate risk. They get cheap deposits, and the curve carries positively, and they're able to lend money. If we do truly have higher for longer and keep the yield curve inverted for A year or more, the banking system won't be able to supply any credit. And um, that's therein lies the real problem. And it's not it's not just the rate hikes. It's the fact that the Fed owns a third of the Treasury mortgage and tips market and is suppressing long term rates. So it's not even allowing the banks to earn their way out of the third of their assets that they hold in government securities. That's and Furthermore, the inflation argument, to me, just strikes me as kind of silly at this point. We're going to be at three on Wednesday on the headline, all items inflation. And then the core is going to decline between now and the first quarter of 2023, regardless of what happens. It's because of the goofy, lag-impaired shelter measures that are going to be putting downward pressure on inflation And Powell's, you know, core, super core services, less rent of shelter, that peaked in September of last year. And that's coming down as well. We had a zero in that last month. So I don't even understand the discussion about inflation. Um, It's going to go to three. It's going to stay there for a while. And we won't know until the second quarter of next year whether they have any chance of getting it to two. Personally, I don't think they do, but I don't think that's important either. If it's stable at three. That's more than sufficient.
2: That's interesting because that, that's what I was going to ask. So let me just leave it as this. So for those who say, all right, well, fine, Barry or Kelly or whoever might have had them, you know, pause rate hikes back in March, but look at the payroll data. And can you imagine how strong the economy would be if they weren't still, you know, pushing a policy into more restrictive territory? What do you think about that?
4: That we're in recession. Uh, we've had two quarters in a row of negative GDI. Income is what matters not the government's feeble attempts to add up the sum total of all the widgets <laughs> and services we produce. The net operating surplus of the private sector has been negative three quarters in a row. Government spending in the GDP accounts has been really positive three quarters a row, in a row, four to five percent. So this to me is not a really good mix. It's a 70s-like mix where The government spends money, the private sector income gets squeezed, and that just impairs productivity and creates stagflation. So I don't like the setup from a long-term perspective at all. Now, listen, I do think there's a productivity story out there that's super positive, and that's the big offset here. But the Fed is really playing with fire. If they stop now, we could have a truly happy ending to all this. Are you on threads, Barry? Yeah, I just uh, I just joined it. I always used Instagram just to look at Ziri golf and you know Jerry of the day skiers doing crazy stuff. But I guess I'll have to use it for business now too. That's so.
2: what I don't I, I don't quite follow. So now and then I got to go find you and I got to find Dom and I got to find all these people on there. And I don't have the energy for that, but I guess everyone else uh, wants it. Barry, thanks for uh, your time. I'm nap
4: bar. So what uh, are
2: you? Nap bar. Nap bar. Nap.
4: <laughs>
2: Nap B-A-R. NAP anyway. okay, Bar, okay. <laughs> they were napping from afar. Barry, have no, a great no, no. rest of your day. Thank you for the time. Barry Knapp warning Welcome us back, about <laughs> more Fed rate hikes. Thank you. My next guest is also concerned, warning there's a ticking time bomb here for corporate America as further Fed tightening coincides with a massive maturity while coming due. Some companies, as we know, have been staying afloat with heavy borrowing. They'll face a choice of default or refinancing at much higher rates. Here with me is James Gellert. He's the chairman and CEO of Rapid Ratings. It's good to see you again. Welcome. Good to see you. Thank you. So I'm going to kind of start this with, as I do with Barry, which is to say a lot of people go, "Okay, well, now I've heard this argument for two or three or six months or nine months or what have you. And kind of when is the apocalypse coming?
1: Well, the apocalypse can't come until the debt actually is maturing and we've got about six and a half trillion dollars of corporate debt maturing in the next thirty six months not a lot in the next six months so most companies have done a pretty successful job of kicking the can down the road and refinancing over the last couple of years when they've been able to and we've had an incredibly conducive market environment that has allowed companies of all credit qualities and all types and sizes to be able to raise capital and uh, and they've done it some of them with impunity Uh, But it has really put the maturity problem further out. So we're really looking at uh, getting into 24 in through 26 when we're going to see a lot of maturities coming due that companies are going to have a harder time uh, refinancing (laughs) or paying off.
2: And the other thing I wonder about, it's it's almost a little bit hidden, but, you know, the bottoms up analysts look at this very closely where. They go, okay. well, maybe this company was able to refire it. But like once you're paying that higher rate and that's putting the squeeze on the business for a couple of years to come, you know, so even if you can get it done, you do wonder about what that means for operating expenses for, you know, the two, three, five year period, whatever it is.
1: Well, absolutely. And we're still in a period where a lot of companies are trying to recover from the COVID period. And all of that extra capital, government funding uh, and financing, as well as uh, ability to borrow has masked the problems of operational degradation for a lot of companies. We've seen in our financial health ratings deterioration in a lot of different industries, and in particular in a lot of private companies. And in private companies that are generally speaking going to be floating rate borrowers, they're the ones that have been hit the hardest with rates increasing. So everyone needs to pay very close attention to what the larger companies who are generally speaking more fixed rate borrowers are doing, but also what the private companies that are floating are that are associated.
2: With and perhaps going into earnings season, it's a reminder, it's really not all about with the largest 500 companies in America tell us who are able to tap that more fixed rate financing or don't have as big a needs when the rest of the economy is comprised of a lot of these smaller firms. Last time you were here, we spoke about some concerns in the auto supplier market, for instance. Where else do you see, it sounds like even in tech where we've had kind of a banner year for the publicly traded names, there are some cracks.
5: Well, you, you,
1: first, you're absolutely right. No company operates in isolation. It operates in an ecosystem of counterparties, suppliers, customers, trading counterparties, all kinds of other businesses and roughly 75% of most fortune 500 companies suppliers are private companies so just to put in perspective just how important that sector really is but we're seeing problems in a whole variety of sectors but i would not just take things in terms of industry i would look in terms of sizes of companies in those industries and the mix of public and private because again with 75 percent of companies suppliers being private you've got to look upstream and understand what the dynamics are that are affecting them autos is one defense and aerospace retail we're seeing drugs, uh, drugs and pharma and health products, uh, as well as technology. And I, and I, and I put technology at sort of last because it's particularly interesting. You've got uh, the largest tech companies in the world have been doing great, really uh, bolstering a bull rally for the, for the course of the year. Not every day, but for the course of the year. But underneath that, you've got companies that have been seeing their their customers' budgets get contracted. And they're getting contracted because customers' budgets are concerned or customers are concerned about general economic conditions and how business their own business is going to look over the next Six, 12, 18 months, and that's starting to flow through.
2: It sounds like you're echoing some of what Barry said when he saw a slowdown. Uh, notices one in smaller size firms and their hiring plans and that kind of thing. So, do you think at some point that what happens typically? Does this bubble up to the biggest companies at some point, or what typically happens throughout the cycle?
1: Well, you're seeing the squeeze, right? So, the smaller companies, the medium sized companies, they, they're suffering higher labor costs, they're suffering higher interest expense, they're suffering parts inflation, and they can't always push those costs through to their larger counterparts. Uh, So you end up downstream with the largest companies continuing to do reasonably well, but having the strength and the wherewithal and the resilience to be able to handle that period of time where everything is bunching up in the middle. And that bunching up in the middle tends to happen with the smaller public companies and a lot of the private companies. So this will flow through eventually, but we're going to see, we've already seen a 70% increase in uh, in default rates and bankruptcies this year over last year, and we're going to see a lot more of that. I think right now it's around six to one private companies to publics. And that will continue, and we're going to see a significant increase in defaults, particularly in uh, mid-size, mid-cap, and smaller private companies.
2: Real quickly, I want to mention Carvana, which we spoke about last time when you were talking about its deteriorating financial profile. And it's emblematic of this market this year in many ways. This was a $3 stock at the 52-week low. It's now at 30 There's so much short interest because of some of the problems you mentioned that it keeps popping every time they talk about being more cash flow or whatever it was positive the last couple of weeks. The shares are up another 8% today what does this tell you?
1: There are a lot of people looking to make money on momentum and uh, today I think the, uh, Carvana announced that they expected to have greater sales from EV products. Well that's not a surprise there's more EV out there uh, but Carvana is not a company that's going to operate its way out of its problems. it has an incredible debt load it has uh, it is in, in battle currently with Apollo and others as its bondholders, it has a failed debt exchange that we talked about last time, and uh, it's a company that absolutely needs debt relief like so many other companies do and are going to more and more. Or, what happens on a day to day basis from an operational or a forecasting perspective just won't matter.
2: Even Royal Caribbean, you mentioned, is one to keep an eye on. As we all, Carnival was kind of the poster child during the pandemic, but maybe now that the tide has turned, so to speak.
1: Right. Well, uh, our financial health rating on Carnival and Royal Caribbean are uh, 26 and 31. They're Pretty not close. strong companies in that sense. Uh, uh, 40 and below is where most defaults have happened over the last 20 years but they are, as you say, emblematic of companies that have been able to refinance and kick the debt can down the road. Others like Rite Aid, AMC, others that have had financial health deterioration, but don't have uh, immediate short-term maturities that are going to trip up or cause a default. But everyone needs to be paying attention to how they are improving if they improve operationally, because when it comes time to have to refinance it's going to be the critical issue.
2: It's just fascinating because that means more shorts and then more momentum traders on the other side every time that there's a pop and people are chasing Absolutely it. So right. important to get the bigger picture here. Jim, thanks for your time today. We Absolutely. appreciate thanks, it. James Kelly. Gellert with Rapid rate, Rapid Ratings. Coming up, one gaming read could rally 30% from here, according to Mizuho. The key could be a big deal for the Bellagio. If you think you know what it is, tweet me, or should I say thread me, uh, at KellyCNBC, and we'll have the analyst behind that call next. Plus, diversify, not decouple. That was the message from Treasury Secretary Yellen's busy weekend in Beijing. But our guest says she's living in the past. He'll tell us why and what China's latest round of disappointing data says about their economy's road to recovery. As we go to break, here's a quick look at the markets. Dow's up 170, half a percent today, but the S&P's only up five and the Nasdaq's down that much. Russell 2000's, by the way, nice move, up 1.3 percent. The 10-year a hair above 4 percent. We're back after this.
0: Welcome
2: back. The office space has been hit hard by the impact of rising rates, tightening credit, pandemic work trends. But if you look past the office, my next guest sees opportunity in REITs right now, especially in gaming, housing, and retail. And he's bringing his top name in each category you're looking at him. Joining me now is Handel St. Just, Senior Retail Analyst at Mizuho. Handel, it's great to see you again. Welcome.
6: Good afternoon. Thanks for having me.
2: So this is really an area where I think there's an effort to tell everyone it's not all just about office. (laughs) Tell us in gaming in particular what's going on right now, because I thought I saw a deceleration in some of the Vegas uh, numbers lately.
6: Well, just stepping back for a minute, I just want to set the table here for a second. You know, the REIT sector here, look, it's been a a choppy year, right? The shifting macro recession risks, tighter access to capital, slowing growth, all on the list of concerns. The stocks are up about 5% year to date, lagging the S&P by about 1,000 basis points, but there is significant dispersion of performance. There's certain sectors like single family rental data centers that are up almost 20% while office is down over 10%. So uh, I think the valuation for this sector uh, generally screens attractive relative to long-term averages and versus private market values. But, you know, it's important to be selective. You know, we, we save our names with better quality assets, tenants, uh, balance sheets, especially in this higher rates for longer uh, backdrop. So, Gaming is one of the sectors we like, single-family yeah. rental, residential, broadly, but happy to get into those now.
2: On gaming, and, and a hat tip to those who guessed this correctly on Twitter, is it Vici, V-I-C-I? This is the REIT you like. There's a Bellagio angle here. Tell me about it.
6: Sure. You know, we like the gaming sector, and Vici specifically. Uh, look, these are the landlords of the casinos. Vici is our top pick, the highest quality portfolio amongst gaming landlords. Uh, they spun out of Caesars, acquired the MGM casino portfolio a few years back. And the structural benefits, CPI uh, linked contractual rent bumps, um, tailwinds that you pointed out, uh, tourism in Vegas, uh, gaming revenues are, are growing. Vegas is packed. The last several times I've been there, uh, it's just amazing how many folks are there. And there's very strong alignment with local governments. And you have stocks here like Vici trading at discounts to leading REITs and other subsectors, but with a far better growth profile. So uh, we like the structural security, the growth, the relative value, uh, and think that certainly you know a potential transaction, including the Bellagio, far from certain. Nothing's been announced. It was. Uh, popped up in a few news articles uh, last week, uh, would be additive and add to their sector-leading portfolio in terms of their dominance on the Strip and and quality.
2: Yeah, if apparently Blackstone might sell half of its stake, Vici would be the natural buyer. Let's move away from the Strip and talk about apartments more broadly, where... This has been an area that for the last couple of years, a lot of different people, whether we talk to bank CEOs or some read analysts, they've been positive. Lately, I'm hearing a little bit more caution on the multifamily side, oversupply, stalling rent growth, that kind of thing. What name here? I mean, is it AIRC? And why do you want to be in this this area right now?
6: Absolutely. In residential, so let's talk about two subsectors briefly, one, the apartment side, and you're right, we like Apartment Investment Realty Corp, AIRC. They own a broad national diversified portfolio, also diversified by price point A and B. They have some exposure to Sunbelt, but again, more broad regional uh, exposure, which gives them some offset to the growing supply that we're seeing now starting to pick up in the Sunbelt, which will be a key theme in the Sunbelt over the next year. Uh, The landlords in residential have had pretty decent pricing power, but we're getting to the end of the summer. And, you know, seasonally, this is a time of year where rent growth starts slowing a little bit. So seasonality starts to take hold. There's some talk about you know affordability, rent has been going up for several years, how much higher, but when you step across the spectrum and think about housing, and part of the reason we like another subsector of residential, single-family rental, uh, the afford- affordability is really stretched. Home mortgages are now well above 6%. There's a millennial uh, demand tailwind, undersupply of housing, so this all accrues to the benefit of single-family rental uh, landlords like American Homes for Rent, a large mega cap REIT, and Tricon, a more niche, smaller cap name. They have pricing power external growth opportunities, and really a better growth story here over the next year and not facing the same supply headwind that apartments are general.
2: Yeah, going back to Vici, $34 price target there, although the price has been only a couple dollars shy of that, uh, on AIRC, a $40 price target, on Agree, which you mentioned, about a $70 price target. These are somewhat conservative. Why is that relative to where these are, companies are currently trading?
6: Sure, I think there still is a lot of you know, uncertainty out there. Obviously, there's concerns about a slowing macro uh, concerns about the consumer, uh, some tenants. Um, obviously, access to capital has been very selective here. And, you know, we think that it's important to discern between uh, the subsectors of real estate. You know, office is facing a, a lengthy set of challenges. Ca- uh, the access to capital is far more challenging. Demand is, is a big question mark. Clearly, the hybrid work uh, from home is going to be a continued headwind for office over the next couple of years. But not all real estate is office. Obviously, the headlines are interesting in, in office land. But we think names like the ones I just outlined, along with Agri, uh, Agri Realty, ADC, uh, a name that focuses on high-quality single-tenant leases with I-grade leading tenants like Walgreens, Walmart, Publix, uh, can also be net winners in the current macro. Uh, portfolios and balance sheets set up to play both offense and defense. And so I think picking names like that in this type of backdrop, selectivity again is something we, we emphasize, yeah. but names that share those attributes we think will be net winners.
2: All right, Hundel, thanks for your time today. We appreciate it. Thank you. And they just joining me. Coming up, 100 million users in less than five days. That makes Threads the fastest growing online platform in history. But is it a flash in the pan or a new true avenue for advertisers? We'll ask one ad exec with Metashares hitting a 52-week high. But first, less than 14 hours until Amazon's annual Prime Day. With all the focus, though, on AI, the cloud, and streaming, does Prime Day even matter for Amazon anymore? That's the subject of today's tech check. Dow's up 160. The exchange is back after this
7: the most innovative companies are going further with t-mobile for business together with delta we're putting 5g into the hands of ground staff so they can better assist on-the-go travelers with real-time information from the delta sky club to the jet bridge this is elevating customer experience this is delta with t-mobile for business Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now.
2: Welcome back to the exchange. This is the 16th year now that CNBC has ranked the top states for business, and the race is closer than ever. Scott Cohn is in an undisclosed location with another hint ahead of tomorrow's big reveal. Hi, Scott.
5: Hi, Kelly. You know, we start collecting data every year around February. There's a whole big process that goes into this. It's a it's a study. It's not an opinion survey. It's it's hard data. A lot of people work on that. With that in mind, we're not going to just tell you the top state for business. We have our patented diabolical hints and we've got another one right now. Old school, old school. That is your next Top States hint. We'll have another one next hour in Power Lunch. The Top States for Business revealed. And you can see where your state ranks tomorrow morning on Squawk Box. Read more about our study at topstates.cnbc.com.
2: Will you Ellen? give us the worst one? I, I mean, like, can we talk about that this hour, or are you saving that?
5: I'm saving, I'm saving that because we don't want to narrow it down at all, but you'll find all of that uh, and, and the reasons why on the website as well. Uh, for for why some states do great, and some states, if yeah. you have top states, you got to have bottom states. Oh, yeah, we, oh, we will get the bottom. All right,
2: I'm looking forward to it. Scott, thank you for now. It looks beautiful wherever you are, our Scott Cohn. To Contessa Brewer
0: now for a CNBC News update. Contessa? Kelly, thank you. President Biden touched down in Vilnius, Lithuania in the last hour on the eve of this week's high-profile NATO summit. The big question, will Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky show up? He was invited but has not confirmed his attendance. There's disagreement about whether to allow Ukraine to join the alliance. Biden said this weekend it would be premature for Ukraine to begin the membership process during a war. An inmate described as dangerous is still on the run after escaping last week from a prison in Pennsylvania, though authorities think they're right on Michael Charles Burm's tail. They think small campsites and stockpiles that they found in the woods are associated with him. Authorities say Burham is a self-taught survivalist who was in prison on arson and burglary charges and is a suspect in a homicide investigation. And for the first time, Switzerland is expected to import more cheese than it exports this year. The head of the country's dairy association says cheese prices just aren't covering the cost of milk right now, which has meant cheesemakers aren't making cheese. guess it stands to reason.
2: Kelly. So prickly about it, too, until it comes from somewhere. We should say, well, this is American cheese if you want it, you know, or wherever it's coming from. Anyway, it could
0: be a boost for Wisconsin. That's all. I'm exactly. Yeah.
2: true Wisconsin cheese. Uh, <laughs> Contessa, thank you very much. Sure. Coming up, China producer prices seeing their steepest decline since 2015. Consumer price is not much better. But my next guest says don't expect any major stimulus from the government here. AEI's Derek Scissors joins me next. Welcome back to The Exchange. Janet Yellen is on her way back to the U.S. after a high-stakes visit to China. The Treasury Secretary said she had a constructive visit overseas, ultimately setting the stage for continued dialogue between China and the U.S. Yellen focused on diversifying rather than decoupling the two economies, saying the world is, quote, big enough for both to thrive. But as the U.S. looks to turn things around, China's growth continues to disappoint. Producer prices just fell at their fastest pace in more than seven years last month. Consumer prices were flat, with worries of deflation persisting, the call for stimulus in China is growing louder. But my next guest says we shouldn't expect anything too big. With me now is Derek Scissors, senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Derek, it's great to see you again. And this is an important market call. A lot of investors are pinning their hopes on some stimulus, if nothing else.
7: Yeah, I think, you know, to get stimulus from Xi Jinping's government after 10 years where we haven't seen any large stimulus, you need kind of a disaster, uh, an export collapse, GDP wildly underperforming for the second quarter. That'll be out next week. But these producer prices and consumer prices—they're not great. They're—they're they're not a disaster. Producer prices are dropping because China has too much capacity, and the world economy is 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 weakening. And it's not shrinking, but it is weakening. The consumer prices are a bigger problem. But if you look at China's stimulus options, they aren't very good. Um, they've actually been trying monetary policy stimulus. It hasn't worked. And you can't really be aggressive on the monetary side without threatening the currency, which is already struggling against the dollar.
2: Mm
7: -hmm. The fiscal side, if you create a bunch of construction jobs, that's not what young people want. So you don't solve the youth unemployment problem.
2: So what do you do? You know, we're showing the wand, by the way, about seven and a quarter against the dollar. So it has weakened considerably. But what so Because the growth and inflation, all the rest of it for everyone else in the world right now hinges on what happens here. What do you think is going to happen? What can policymakers do or is it just a waiting game or could it get worse?
7: I don't think it will get worse in the short term. I mean, a lot of this disappointment is people had very high expectations for China this year coming out of zero covid. And those expectations haven't been met, clearly. Uh, But maybe they were excessive. From the Chinese perspective, they set a conservative GDP target. Everyone said, well, they'll easily beat it. They're still going to beat it, but not by much. They may not think this is much of a problem. Xi Jinping is not very friendly to stock markets or the Chinese property market. So everybody waiting and saying China has to do something, that doesn't appear to be the view of Chinese policymakers. I think muddling through is the most likely outcome.
2: So all of that said, the tone that uh, China seems to be taking here, both in the description of how the meeting with uh, Secretary Yellen went when they say The next action is up to the U.S. to stop suppression, sanctions, export gerbs, the Xinjiang goods ban and tariffs. They want us to do all of those things while at the same time escalating their own tit for tat, restricting a couple of those minerals. Maybe you remember the names better than I do. I feel like I need my periodic table out. So what who makes the next move here? Do you expect the U.S. to to kind of, you know, ease off a little bit?
7: Yeah, it's not going to be China that makes the next move. I think Secretary Yellen is probably going to come back to Washington and say, "Oh, you know, I did some good work here. Now we need to follow up with with a conciliatory gesture. Um, we have the opportunity. We can we can change our export control rules that we applied in October. Those are interim rules. Interim rules on semiconductors. We can modify them, loosen them up some. There are certainly people in the business community here who are advocating for that. So I think if there's going to be a move, it'll be on the American side. Of course. People were talking this way. And then we had a balloon you know, fly over the U.S. So I, I don't mean to say that the U.S. side, U.S. move is guaranteed. It's just that's really the only possibility.
2: Have you ever gotten to the bottom of the balloon incident? You know why it happened? What was it? Was it an accident? Was it on purpose? Like, was it is this a routine? Like, I still feel like I don't have a convincing explanation of the timing and the purpose and the whole thing.
7: Well, I, I certainly cannot be definitive about that because I don't have a I don't have a definitive explanation either. Chinese surveillance of the U.S. We we started paying a lot more attention to it with the balloon, with the you know the idea of a base in Cuba. There's a lot of surveillance of the U.S. There's U.S. surveillance of China. It is suspicious that the balloon happened to seem to malfunction at exactly that time. So it's not news that the Chinese are watching us. That was not a new development. The balloon occurring exactly that time does raise some eyebrows, as if somebody in China wanted. Uh, relations to be to be poor.
2: You don't think b- spy balloons over the u i like we shouldn't be surprised by that. I I was a little surprised.
7: Uh no, I mean they're you know uh, I, the I'm sorry, I don't mean to make this too personal, but I I wouldn't be surprised if the Chinese were listening to the next phone call you made or the next phone call I made. Oh. Um there's a lot of surveillance. Uh, they put a lot of money into surveillance for for political reasons, for technology reasons. So I don't think we should be surprised by, by the balloon. I don't know that we should like it. That's a different story. But I don't think that was new. I don't think watching us is new from China. The balloon sort of wandering out in the open was new and, uh, and much more suspicious.
2: I suppose the reason I'm asking is because as we talk about whether the U.S. should relax export controls or, or, or something like this, you wonder, well, do we still have our hands around the level of surveillance or, you know, that's going on right now. Does more reporting need to be done? Does there need to be a bigger policy reaction or as we've seen kind of an economic reaction to make sure that our supply chains are to some extent disentangled? So, you know, figuring out what exactly they're they're doing and we're doing back to them feels like it's important in determining whether we should take our foot off the gas a little bit or really press ahead with some of the restrictions that we've been imposing.
7: No, I, I agree with that. I brought up export controls at the beginning for a reason. The Chinese surveillance is partly enabled by U.S. technology. It might be partly enabled by U.S. investment. We don't know where our investment goes in China because the Department of the Treasury won't even report that. Yeah. So we have had a hand in China watching us. We've had a hand in other things that we don't like China doing. We should be thinking about that. It should be part of the debate. We should have more information. Uh, the administration should justify its export control decisions. It should tell us where U.S. investment in China is going. So I think it does require more more monitoring from the from the press and from the Congress and so on. Just you know, even if you're a China dove, we should be making an informed decision. Um, it's not clear that we're we're ready for that yet. We if if you were surprised as someone paying attention by Chinese <laughs> surveillance, I think a lot of people were surprised and they probably you know they're even more surprised and unhappy that the surveillance was made easier by you with U.S. help.
2: That's a great point. I think no one could argue with that, that we want more information one way or the other to figure out what to do with it. Derek, thanks as always. We appreciate your time. Derek Scissors with AEI. Coming up, Amazon shares lower in the lead up to its annual Prime Day. Used to be a huge deal for the e-commerce giant. Still seems to move the needle on retail sales. But are those days fading? We'll ask next. Amazon Prime Day, or days, uh, kick off tomorrow, likely to generate about $5 billion of revenue, according to J.P. Morgan. Some are also warning the annual sales event might not be the driver it once was for the stock, especially as Amazon Web Services grows. Here to dig in for the, to that for. Here to dig into that for us is Deirdre Bosa with today's tech check. Hi, Deirdre. <laughs>
8: hey. Um, so that $5 billion number, that is an estimate that you know Wall Street thinks Amazon is going to make this year. But Amazon doesn't actually publish those numbers. We don't know how big of a boost it is. But you're right, Kelly, in the sense that a lot of investors just aren't buying Amazon stock for the e-commerce um, business anymore because, as you mentioned, AWS, it is growing faster and it makes more money, as well as advertising, which is a relatively newer business for the company, the margins are just so much better. It's actually making profit where that is the margins are just so much thinner in the e-commerce business. So Prime Day, yeah, it's interesting, but we shouldn't be surprised. The chart you're looking at right now, um, the stock has actually done, ended the day lower on the last four years because that growth as well in Prime Day is also expected to come down from
2: much higher levels, 30% in 2020. Maybe because in the past, Georgia, there was a sense by investors of, "Wow, the more people buy stuff, the more prime memberships that generates." But we're at such yeah. a saturation point that now they probably look at it and just see red and go, "No, you know, that's another last mile. That's another return that's going to happen." Yeah, that's an, exactly. You know, the, that part of the business just doesn't look that great. You're right,
8: and it, exactly, it's lower margin. So that prime ecosystem, which is so powerful, if you think in the U.S., that has sort of reached a close to saturation point. There's not as much to be made here, and yeah, you think about how much. Um, the company has had to spend to grow that logistics number, that logistics network. It's interesting, though, when Andy Jassy was talking to John Fort last week on our air, he was saying that they actually have become so much more efficient and those costs are coming down. So that could be kind of an interesting surprise. But of course, what the market has focused on all year is the AI proposition, right? And most of that is going to be seen in AWS. It's cloud business. It doesn't have as
2: much to do in terms of the e-commerce. It also feels like streaming maybe moves the needle. I don't know which is the worst business sometimes, streaming or, or internet retail. But there are also <laughs> a lot of other um, retailers, a target for instance, who yeah. have kind of copied the concept. So, you know, consumers are not dumb. They're, they're going to know Amazon's got to make this really compelling. And again, the more compelling it is for the consumer, the less interested investors are.
8: Yeah, and and think about it, too. There's other platforms out there that aren't even American. We talked about Timu last week that is just offering such basement bargain prices that that's like an everyday Prime Day, right? They're just spending so much money to capture the American consumer that maybe it's taken some of the gleam off of Prime Day also.
2: So true. Do you think Timu is kind of the old Uber model of you know, go steal the whole market and then raise prices? Or is it more of an H&M where, no, it's always going to be cheap and, you know, high turnover and that kind of thing? That's a good question, right, because they are manufacturing and
8: they're getting a lot of the products from China where those costs are a lot lower. So probably a little bit of both. Right. They're trying to acquire the customer they're willing to spend. I mean, I don't know how else the promotions make sense, Kelly. True. (laughs) They're basically handing out money. So maybe that's the strategy. But they've also got better margins because everything is made in China. And there's also some sort of loopholes um, in terms of tariffs that they can get through. So a little bit of all of it. But it's providing a pretty compelling um, thesis
2: for the American consumer at the moment. No, it's fascinating. Amazon has to. When everyone with. said it was going to be the end of globalization, the end of the China supply chain, you know, the end of Chinese apps, and literally all of the this one thing, it's all of the opposite stuff, and it's like the biggest thing ever. Uh, yeah, but that's you got how it goes. TikTok coming to the e-commerce market, too. Exactly. So that's so we'll a great see. point. That's a great point in one area to watch. Deirdre, thank you very much, our dear Trebosa. Still ahead, while the cage match between Mark Zuckerberg and Elon Musk has yet to be officially scheduled, the battle of the public discourse platforms is definitely on with Meta's launch of threads. We'll get the latest in its rapid rise and what advertising on the service could look like next. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. Earning your degree online doesn't mean you have to go about it alone. At Capella University, we're here to support you when you're ready. From enrollment counselors who get to know you
7: and your goals, to academic coaches
2: who can help you form a plan to stay on track, we care about your success and are dedicated to helping you pursue your goals. Going back to school is a big step. But having support at every step of your academic journey
7: can make a big difference. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.